Primary Care Knowledge Boost, COVID-19, Episode 2, Telephone and Video Consultations. Welcome back to the second episode of our COVID-19 series for primary care. Thanks to everyone who's listened and given feedback so far in the first episode. It's really lovely to hear that you're all finding them useful um, and we're taking all those ideas on board for planning the next couple of weeks. The idea of these episodes that we're producing weekly is to focus on specific topics that are relevant in primary care at the moment, given the COVID pandemic. So before we start this episode, we wanted to mention some papers and research bits that we found useful for our practice this week. The first one, in case um, people haven't seen it, is the Faculty of Reproductive and Sexual Health that have got a contraception update, which is specific for COVID, really, in terms of making decisions about contraception. Um, And yeah, there was the um, BMJ, Trish Greenoff's Assessment of COVID Patients article, which is excellent. It's a really nice read. And then, yes, Sarah, you sent me the Red Whale Emotional and Psychological Survival Guide PDF, which was really nice. Yeah, I love that one. I sent it on to my friends who are teachers and they absolutely loved it. Over the past few weeks, the majority of general practice has moved towards telephone triage and video assessments if we weren't already doing that before, which I know for me, it's been quite new. So we thought today it'd be really useful to focus about some tips in this area. Yeah beautiful um so we have a couple of guests this week uh, to talk to us about this topic area uh, would you like to introduce yourselves and your current roles hello i'm dr dan bunstone i'm a clinical director and gp in warrington and i'm also chief medical officer at push doctor that is a digital video provider of consultations hello i'm, I'm joanna bircher and i'm here as part of the greater manchester gp excellence program i'm a gp partner in Staleybridge, which is part of tameside and glossop So just to start, I guess, do you want to um, talk through some initial tips um, for how to approach a telephone or or video consultation? So I think this is one of the things that video adds itself to, which is um, a little bit of an extension, which is great. So it's all about clinical judgment. And I think the thing that's most important is the golden minute. So in communication skills, we talk about that a lot uh, when we first meet a patient, having that first minute to let people just speak and just listen. I think that's a bit harder on the telephone. So, of course, making sure we do the introductions, otherwise things might sound a little bit weird if you just ring the phone and just go silent for a minute. It's a, It results in a police phone call, I think, on the other end. But after introductions and all those things have happened, actually just letting people speak and just being comfortable with that is a really great place to be. I think naturally that's why being able to see somebody, like in a video context, and being able to visualise them enables that much better and more powerfully because of course patients tend to get out their information much more and tell you what they're there to tell you so the silence for me is really really important i think that's a really good point i think we use a lot of um, non-verbals when we're encouraging people to talk in that golden minute and they're the non-verbals that you can't see very well over the telephone yeah so the nodding the smiling the encouraging the um and and, and yeah as dan said it can feel very strange for people for it just to be silent on the phone so that's um yeah quite helpful yeah i think it's interesting as well so the antithesis of that of course is it also as i've just proven there when i'm trying to interrupt with sarah is it's uh, it allows you that ability to sort of spot people's body language and spot natural pauses in the conversation because i'm not actually sure what that thing is but you can tend to spot when people want to slow down and move on to the next bit which you don't clearly see as easily on the uh, on the telephone of course yeah and in general what's useful about about telephone telephoning people we had quite a big shift in the the way we viewed telephone a few years ago when we decided to stop calling it triage okay 
because triage gives this automatic impression that this is kind of second best and it's a gate you've got to leap over or climb through before you're allowed to actually get a decent consultation with the doctor. But actually for some people, the consultation over the phone is absolutely what they wanted and what they needed. And then during that conversation, it's for you and the patient to decide whether you need to proceed to something else of course in the pre-covid years that would have been potentially a face-to-face consultation and that's less likely to happen but it can be very similar in terms of whether the practitioner and the patient decide that a video is going to add some value to this so the lovely thing about telephone is it gives that kind of flexibility usually and for patients to not have to travel to where you are as the practitioner so if they are working or less able um, it's good for the planet in terms of saving the carbon so yeah it's, it's I think thinking about it as a telephone consultation clearly it has been a big advantage in terms of workload management in quickly deciding who does need to proceed to either a face-to-face or in current context video consultation so that's why I guess it's it's kept its name triage in a lot of places because it makes sense to people in deciding so the practitioner decides who needs to be seen but actually really it's about both parties both the practitioner and the patient working out what's the best thing for them yeah I, I would entirely agree with Joanna's point I think Video has never really, and I'll use the word suffered, that point about triage. So, of course, with Push Doctor, we have always just had a consultation. So you have a GP video consultation. It's never been triaged, it's never felt second best. I think for patients, digital offers massive flexibility. So to be clear, I am not saying video and digital is a panacea and a golden bullet. Far, far from that. But there are massive amounts of areas that it can fit very neatly into. And I would suggest to you the majority of MSK stuff, certainly, it, it could do. And uh, goodness knows, a, a lot of the uh, mental health and the psychological therapies kind of stuff too. Mm. Yeah. How is it that you go about usually over the phone or over video deciding who's okay to stay as a telephone or video and who should we be moving on to seeing face-to-face? So for video, I think there's some additional barriers to entry that telephone probably doesn't suffer anymore mm-hmm. so i guess the practicalities are you need the kit so you would need to have a smartphone or a pc that's enabled i think i think the world's changed now where most people do tend to have at least some form of smartphone or another and access to wi-fi um, and then after that it's just about being able to utilize the piece of kit so we're doing lots of work at the moment in care homes for example where you might naturally assume that as a frail elderly person definitely with dementia you, you wouldn't necessarily be able to use the kit however a professional carer or a carer who normally looks after your friend relative etc really could hold an ipad up for you etc which is much easier than getting you to the surgery and better for you too so there's lots of things that go with that um clinically similar sort of assessments apply i'm I'm a bit of a beginner on the whole video consulting thing since covid19 i think i've done about five or six video um although i've years of experience of telephone consultation so it's been really interesting I've been a fan of technology but i've always questioned really what value video would bring compared to telephone and have possibly been a bit cynical about it and actually what I found in those five or six that I have done is that the value added is is quite significant. Mm-hmm. I think Trisha Greenhouse summarises this really well in all the papers she's been um, doing for the BMJ related to um, telephone and video. So something about seeing somebody who already knows you, they see your face, they seem to feel significantly more reassured. There's something about those kind of non-verbals that make them, give them a sense of kind of relaxing about something so there's been a few things which I've thought I can tell over the phone this is 
this is fine but but I just feel I need to sell it better and there was something about them being able to see my face and me see their face that did that Mm. Um, and that was about kind of physical physical symptoms I am I do think getting over the initial bits of um, which we certainly have with the tech that Dan put so well does lead to some kind of hilarity I think at the beginning of the video consultation while you're both shouting can you hear me can you see me um and then you kind of (laughs) often some jokes like who lives in a house like this you know you can see all the background (laughs) stuff and um which actually can be quite a it might feel a little unprofessional at at the start but actually can be a great leveler and um, Mm. actually quite good for the quality of the consultation and that's not just um in video I've um my I think one of my funniest stories with a telephone consultation was realizing kind of part way through this conversation with this chap about his symptoms that he was on hands-free and I'd forgotten to do the basics which I think we should probably talk about um making sure that you know where somebody is what the circumstances are is it a good place to talk because often we've instigated the call and um, they may have requested it but then when we actually do the call back it comes from us so we need to check those basic things so once I realized he was on hands-free I said um I then became aware that he was communicating with somebody so I said oh are you on your own and it turned out he was a taxi driver and he had a fare in the cab who <laughs> was listening to the whole oh whole <laughs> consultation and I now I mean it's really it's good to learn from mistakes isn't it but now I've since that chap asked for telephone consultations quite frequently and and I know him and I say are you on your own in the cab can I call you back in five minutes <laughs> Um, and with video that in a way that's a little bit easier although at the same time with when the camera is pointing at the face of the person you're consulting you don't know who else is in the room so I think those kind of um I suppose I'd call them hygiene consultation hygiene pointers are quite important so um are you okay to talk is it a good time we make big assumptions because they've requested a telephone consultation or a video consult that that when we call them back that it's going to be highly convenient because we forget sometimes that we're not the most important people in the world um, so just checking is now a right is now a good time to talk and are you on your own and if there's somebody there with you is it somebody you would normally have in a consultation mm. room and you're happy to speak freely in front of them mm. I think it's pretty pretty important I bet um, I bet Dan's got lots of stories to tell about that <laughs> yeah I mean that is a really good point actually because of course it, it, it's it's not one of the standard questions you ask is it because somebody arrives at your surgery it's implicit they've either walked in with their husband or wife or spouse or they're on their own whereas to your point you don't know if there's somebody sat behind the screen who you can't see, which could be a faux pas, or actually there, there could be something far more cynical going on there from a safeguarding perspective. Mm. So there's very, very genuine things to consider like that. We always ID patients too, from a video perspective, which is interesting because unless you specifically know patients and you know walk-in centres and A&Es are very good examples of this, you're not routinely asked to prove that you are Dan Bunstone and here's your date of birth, etc. Mm-hmm. Whereas for video... Um, that is that is a requirement that's there, and rightly so, because probably it's a little bit more easy to abuse from a more general perspective than if you were having to walk to a, to a centre. Yeah. But equally, I think that sort of strengthens things and, and, and makes it better for patients because, of course, then you know specifically who you're talking to. Um, I think there's less risk when you're NHS because, of course, the organisation that you attach to vouches for that person as the right person and there's lots of soft details in the background. And we've kind of talked, we've talked really good stuff there about um, things you don't even consider. So the connection, the technology, the um, checking the ID. Um, in terms of the clinical aspect of the telephone and video calls, is there anything that you do differently 
um, when you're on the telephone or video than what you do face to face? So when we recruit new doctors at Push Doctor, we have a full onboarding process. So what that would look like is effectively two stages. And let me paraphrase, basically we would check that you are a doctor to begin with. So the GMC, the DBS, et cetera, et cetera. Then we go on to make sure that you're a good doctor. And by that, I mean, we enable you to use video consultations and practice. We'll also audit the first 20 consultations that you do and make sure that the quality of consultation is correct and actually that you've probably followed guidance and uh, nice stuff things from phe etc mm. um, which i think is a really strong place to be as a rule of thumb i tend to suggest to our doctors that you should record probably twice as much in your consultation notes as you would do if you were sat in front of somebody the rationale for that is that you know, you probably miss a lot of stuff out that you might get from a face-to-face examination, etc. So it's really important you listen to the consultation and record, as I said, at least twice as much as you would do in a standard face-to-face consultation. Mm. A little bit finger in the air, but you can see the principle behind that. And we've had some really good feedback as a result where the notes look really high quality. We follow some specific protocols. And for common conditions, we've got protocol-based recording for that. So that make sure you tick all the boxes correctly that you need to be ticking which helps mm. and you can see things like rashes like um, tonsil exudate etc there's, there's lots of additional bits of evidence you can gather plus you know you can look at the background too so if the room's entirely unkempt that gives you a slightly different uh, aspect too i think the other key bit of course and joanna did touch on this is safety netting absolutely massive you you've really got to be clear and specific about you know not just if things get worse come back and see us you need to be really good at the safety netting bit to say, you know, these are three or four things to look for. If they happen, please come back and consult with us again because things have changed. The world has changed for you. Yeah, I mean, I think um, it's a really good question, Lisa, and it's a bit of a concern of mine that we're trying to use video and telephone consultations now as a way of carrying on some kind of routine primary care because mm-hmm. other illnesses do exist other than COVID-19. Um, and we're still in the very, very early stages of that. So um, I found my brain at the moment is very much um, using that consultation to risk stratify how significant I think this symptom might be. Mm-hmm. Like, God forbid, it is a symptom that could be an early cancer or something mm-hmm. that I wouldn't want to put on the back burner until COVID is over. Or um, if it's something that's likely to be benign or likely to get better by itself. Uh, and us not having that ability to do that easy reassuring examination so to bring somebody in for an examination risks both them and you as a practitioner yeah. Yeah. because in these days really assuming everybody could be carrying coronavirus is the safest place to be so i think we're in early days of that um, and so certainly we know decent histories tell us 90 percent of what we need to know but they don't necessarily tell us everything and I, I'm a bit of a watch this space on that. I can see myself when I'm consulting with people over video or telephone doing that risk stratifying and saying, I, I, I can't give you a clear diagnosis. It's not worrying me at the moment. It sounds like one of those things that we could safely wait and see. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, and that's similar if things that we would do kind of blood tests for. So in the pre-COVID-19 days, when I'd be telephone consulting, often that was really efficient because just on a set of symptoms, I know that I could arrange for someone to have an investigation or a blood test without even an examination. So regardless of examination findings, I would still be doing 
whatever so for example typical one somebody with irritable bowel syndrome type symptoms you would not expect to find anything on examination although you may at some point examine them just to check for any obvious findings but you would quite rightly bring them in for the standard kind of bowel and blood tests and celiac tests anemia tests before you would necessarily even examine them and then you've got the really efficient consultation because you can examine them and look at the results together and come to a decision between you in terms of what the diagnosis is well we're not in that world I kind of need to make a decision even for my healthcare assistants whether I put the patient or the healthcare assistant at risk by bringing them in for a blood test so we're in a a more high risk zone at the moment and the longer it goes on the more we are going to have to start making decisions about how much routine care we do risk for the sake of not missing um diagnoses that we would want to pick up earlier um, for better prognosis for patients so yeah um and I, I mean i'm saying that i kind of as a beginner video consultor i guess but i'm um, thinking it not just in terms of the doctors and their examination but also the people who will be taking blood tests who'll be performing ultra- yeah. ultrasound scans or what other other kind of investigations that we would normally routinely offer yeah so i guess like you said the the thing that you can rely on most at the minute is that history and just making sure that you have asked red flags and that you're happy that you don't think it is like you said something serious or like a cancer and otherwise it can maybe be kind of bookmarked but it is a scary time um of of either on telephone or video consultations um have you got any sort of tips in general uh, or specific tips about uh, trying to manage manage risks in the in the kind of um people who've been consulting us with mild potentially mild covid19 symptoms mm-hmm. we have generated a um a text a standard text template that we then text out to people giving them clear instructions about what to do next that's nice the um, nhs uk website texting out links to those gives people more clear written instructions about this happens or that happens they're not ideally suited to post consultation because they're often about if people have sought that advice before they've seen the doctor so a lot of the advice is if this happens it's consult your doctor well they've just done that so (laughs) it's not ideal (laughs) so making um making your own uh, is useful i think dan's really good point about the clear the clear if this happens do this that's really brilliantly communicated by text they've got something they can look back to and um, that they said this, yeah. do this, um, which I think is is potentially helpful. My fear at the moment is the things that we would normally tell them to do, <laughs> maybe come down for a face-to-face consultation. We've got a different threshold now for that. Yeah. So it's kind of consult us again. And I guess then we will re- Recheck that risk. reassess risk and work out um, whether we want to investigate further. Yeah, lovely. I, I, just, I always think um, mm. one of my most helpful video consultations that I did last week was and people have said this to me until I saw it I'd not really realized quite how true it was is when somebody's consulting with a sick child and and then on the video you can see them in this particular case bashing the mum over the head with the tv remote control I'm thinking okay I'm really not that worried about you at the moment (laughs) so you know those things that make us feel confident when we consult especially with children um, as GPs I think uh I'd agree. I think that combination of safety netting where you you, you verbalise it and you say, but then you also back up with either a text or a link to a, a an important site that patients can then look around and look for their symptoms is, uh, is, is, is really key. Really, really powerful that. Yeah, that's a great idea. Yeah. So we'd already kind of mentioned this. I think this might be a mute point, but we're going to ask about triaging people with mild COVID-like symptoms and they're calling about a different problem. Would we approach these patients in a different way to someone calling 
uh, without any COVID symptoms? Um, I, my, my view is the world is changing with this at the moment. So we've gone from, you know, a few weeks ago saying COVID common symptoms are cough and fever mm-hmm. to pretty much now saying, well, you know, anybody might have it. So any face to face needs to be considered COVID until otherwise proven. So the, the whole principle art, hot, hot hubs, not hot tubs, yeah. hot hubs uh, is, a, is, is a really important piece. But I, I am left wondering now if any face-to-face consultation should be considered as, as, as COVID and less proven otherwise. And that's where the WHO guidance is uh, sort of pointing towards, isn't it? So, yeah. yeah, I think you're right. I think it's almost become a little bit of a mute point, to be honest with you. Yeah, we should really be treating everybody as if they've potentially got yeah. it and managing everybody in the same way. I mean, the, the, you can see the implications if one of us got COVID, had you know no clinical symptoms in that sort of that early phase where we're infected but no symptoms and of course you then go and see 50 other people or goodness me more than that including for a elderly it's just catastrophic isn't it yeah absolutely catastrophic exactly the one of the last things i was going to ask about was we've alluded to this anyway but telephone triage and, and the remote working i think can be a bit daunting for people who are used to having face-to-face assessments all the time and getting actual obs and numbers and figures that they can rely on do you have any tips to be able to get get that objective information over the telephone or the, or, or the video uh so there's a couple of things there so yeah i mean we're, we're talking now about things like roth score and um breathlessness and been, you know the old favorite of being able to say you're addressed without taking your breath in and um, mm. so there are there are some soft measures um i think roth score as an example is probably being used as a reasonable surrogate at the moment because in lieu of anything, something is probably better. Though I think we're going to have to be really careful about that because, you know, we could give ourselves some really false reassurances and, uh, and create problems. Having said that, I haven't got a solution other than that. I guess, actually, a lot of people probably, they might have a blood pressure machine at home or, or a thermometer or maybe have a Fitbit or something that they can mm. tell you um, bits of information from just what they've got around the house. Yeah, there's um if they've got a smartphone and they're able to do the video, then there are also apps to do um heart rate mm. by putting your finger over the um over the flash on your camera. Oh. Um, to telling patients how to download those types of things from the app store might be useful. Mm. But um sometimes it's just looking and seeing someone's face if they're well or ill, isn't it? And mm. we like the numbers when we're often when we're deciding that we don't need to take action. Yeah. Yeah, and and so that's talking about our own kind of feeling of being more at risk. It it makes us feel confident that we've been able to write down a normal heart rate and a normal blood pressure and a normal temperature. Yeah. We're not going to be in that world, but um, fortunately, our regulators clearly recognise that we're not in that world, um, and have sent some nice reassuring guidance out yeah. to clinicians to say that that's recognised, and we just have to do our best. Yeah. Um, what about just a, a, a logistical point um, now, sort of thinking about telephone consultations and if you've prescribed something, how are you guys advising people about logistics of uh, collecting scripts? Fortunately, most patients are now on electronic prescribing, as far as I'm aware, certainly they are in our, within our practice. Yeah. And clearly, I think making sure that patients know if they're in the shielded group or not because not everyone has yet received their letter if they're in that group so it's going to be important for the person doing that prescribing to reinforce the fact that they're shielded and it's not them that goes out and collects their prescription from the pharmacy yeah um that they need someone else to do that for them if they're not in a shielded group we've also been working a bit with our community pharmacists on trying to make their places safer so um you know, we had strict rules in terms of who could come into the practice and who couldn't. And yet in our, the little tiny 
pharmacy that's adjoining our practice they had a small room with 15 people crammed into it waiting for prescriptions so I mean <laughs> you know trying to think about yourself as being part of the bigger system if you're trying to keep your patients safe then trying to keep them safe in other environments as well is also important and um, and we put a call out for somebody to construct a gazebo outside the pharmacy and and um, so that people could wait at a safe distance from each other and and had a wonderful um company step up to do that for us which has been helpful wow so another tip at the moment would be to perhaps check the pharmacy's website first because they are may well have altered opening hours yeah from what the person's used to yeah um, and clearly trip out um to find that the pharmacy's closed resulting in another trip out later on is what we're all trying to avoid yes so check on that pharmacy website many pharmacists are, are having hours during the day where they're closing to catch up there's been a big increase in people requesting routine prescriptions so for example if i took march as an example in our practice our practice was um uh, issued a thousand more prescriptions in march compared to february so um we did three thousand five hundred prescriptions in february and four thousand five hundred prescriptions in march and most of those will have gone to the small pharmacy next door we were not prescribing people their things early as far as we were aware because we knew that that was not in the rules but Mm -hmm. clearly people will easily be able to do it a little bit early without us noticing Mm -hmm. as similarly people who haven't collected a normal routine prescription um, for a while for their blood pressure their heart disease their asthma their COPD suddenly recognizes the importance of um, ongoing um, control of their long-term condition and they put a request in for their repeat so that's quite an increase in workload um, for the pharmacy uh, for the practice too but clearly for the pharmacy who are doing the dispensing so they've had to um, alter opening hours to catch up with all of that so yeah check in their website and um, that when they're open if it's somebody who's not got access to internet I'm hesitant to say give the pharmacy a ring to check when it's a good time to come because I know that they're so busy even taking phone calls might be difficult mm. but actually some of the pharmacists will appreciate that because mm. they'll they'll be able to stagger people's pickup times true my vision in the future is that some of the routine dispensing maybe can be done like and um, some of the Amazon pickup parcel things where people get given a, mm. a barcode or a um you know a keypad number and they can just go and collect it from an outside mm. dispenser so i think um the big pharmacy companies are already looking at that type of thing that reduces human to human contact and makes things efficient so mm. although being done in a hurry because of the current situation could potentially have advantages um for people being able to pick up um prescriptions and things out of hours mm. in the future that's a good point I think the only additional bit, the, the pharmacy near to us has recruited uh, a lot more additional uh, delivery drivers. So, of course, you leave your prescription, you don't go at all. And the whether or not you're normally housebound, the drivers just take them out to you, leave them on your doorstep, ring your bell and, and leave. Almost like a professional knock and run. <laughs> yeah, actually, th- yeah, thanks for mentioning that, Dan, because actually the, every um, local authority will also have devised a list of volunteers, yes. of mm. people who volunteered to help, the sh- particularly the shielded group. So if there's someone in a shielded group that doesn't have a... Um, a friend or relative or neighbour that's not in a shielded group that's uh, allowed out to collect a prescription they can contact their local authority and that person will be able to do that for them that's brilliant um so i was just gonna say if we're wrapping up then what um if each of you take a turn and say what's your top um tips that you want people to take away today so for me i think with video and digital i would say give it a try and practice and see what that thing looks and feels like it's not 
universally different to uh, a Zoom or a Skype or FaceTime conversation mm-hmm. you would have with your friends and family. The consultation is subtly different and there's bits you miss out, but goodness me, there's a massive gap you can fill. Very, very convenient for you as a clinician and very, very convenient for patients. And certainly in the current times of coronavirus, it's deeply into necessity rather than desire. So I would say to absolutely give that a go. And my top tip is if you're going to be doing a video or telephone consultation, record at least twice as much consultation notes as you would do in a traditional face-to-face. Thank you. And Joanna? Yeah, my tips were make sure you know where they are and who they're with and think about it as a consultation, not a triage. Lovely. Well, thank you so much, guys, for talking to us today. It's been really interesting to hear your thoughts about the subject. Thanks, guys. Thanks very much indeed. Thanks for having us. So that was a really lovely episode. So, Lisa, what what are your takeaway points from this one today? Um, I think it was really good at the start with Dan saying about silence on telephone calls. I hadn't really thought about that, but how it can come across very differently than a face-to-face consultation and might even seem a bit creepy (laughs) if you just go silent on the phone. Um, So it's just something to bear in mind um, that was interesting. Yeah, the golden minute. (laughs) I really liked his points about the other tips that you could pick up from video that I I have thought about rashes and assessing kids because we mentioned that last time as well. But also uh, if the environment doesn't look great as well, just picking up on those kind of cues. And like, yeah, just talking about the benefits of video um, we were actually saying afterwards when we'd finished recording, but it might be better to do video in the COVID-19 um, era mm-hmm. um, because when you bring someone in to do a face-to-face examination, you're actually going to be full PPE'd. Um, so you'll have your mask on your hand. You're not going to look like your actual self. You're not going to be able to get those nonverbal cues. Whereas on a video, they'll actually be able to see you as you and you can interact with them properly. Yeah, that's right. I mean, even just for the sort of emergency blood tests or immunizations that are happening, it's it's all PPE now. So Yeah, so it's a very different time to do face-to-face stuff, isn't it? Yeah, it is definitely. The safety now netting as well was really interesting making sure it's really particular specific safety netting which I need to pull my socks up with a little bit in terms of how much is kind of not peeing yeah actually define it yeah Yeah. and those links are so useful yeah and and like we'll have their mobile number we have their contact details we can send them the the links yeah so they get they have that specific safety netting that they can look up after the consultation yeah it's perfect yeah so um as we said um, last time and we've said on Twitter we want to get your feedback for these we want to make them relevant we want to make them useful so please get into contact with us if you've got any any feedback any questions that you want answered that we can try and go and source and find for you just let us know mm-hmm. and the next couple of episodes should be around assessment of COVID patients and then one on palliative care which way round they'll be is yet to be determined yeah exactly or if something dramatic happens I guess um, in the next couple of weeks we might have to amend things but at the minute that's what we're thinking of yeah so you can use twitter to send us through ideas our handle is at pckb podcast or you can use our gmail which is primarycarepodcasts at gmail.com yep and we have our um survey which at the minute it's just a useful way for anonymously getting in touch with us um you can just write in the comments box if you've got any questions on that and we'll put a link in the episode description so you can use that if you want to yeah till next time on primary care knowledge boost Hey guys, just a friendly reminder that these podcasts are for healthcare professional education and shouldn't be used for medical advice by the general public. They were recorded in Greater Manchester in 2020. 
guidelines can vary by location as well as over time, so always check for up-to-date local and national guidelines before making treatment decisions. Uh, The content is based on our interviewee's opinion and interpretation of current best practice. It's your responsibility to use your clinical judgment before applying or relying on information solely from this podcast. Check out the episode description for full details and any links that we've mentioned in the episode.